Take your, uh, your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8 once again. Uh, we'll continue our study in the book of Romans. And I hope that you uh, didn't uh, get too out of sync with your schedule today, that you uh, uh, have to remember to come to church and at 6 o'clock. I know it's easy to just be sitting there uh, enjoying the afternoon and the, maybe the nice weather and say, oh yeah, we've got church tonight. Uh, but uh, good to uh, see each one of you here tonight, and I trust uh, the study of God's Word will be a blessing uh, to us. Tonight we want to look at the diligence of the spirit life, uh, Romans chapter 8, and we'll begin in verse um, 18 uh, as uh, we uh, look at this text. I think we'll read this uh, portion before we actually get into it. I think it will help us with the continuity here. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. For I reckon, there's that word reckon again, I reckon that the suffering of this present time Uh, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of, a, of the body. For we are saved by hope, and hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray, nor as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, verse 18 of our text reminds us uh, of one of the most fundamental truths of the Christian life. That truth is this, that we're not home yet. We wait to be delivered from this world. We need to remember we're living in a world under a curse. Uh, And as a result of that curse, there's a lot of groaning. There's a lot of turmoil taking place in our world today. You don't have to look too far in the news, and you can see that happening all around us. Not only in, in the Middle East, but in our own country and many other places as well. And in the midst of it, it's easy to become discouraged, and it's easy to want to say, well, let's just give up. It's too hard. Well, there is one big thing in this passage that we're taught And that is that the spirit life is one of diligence. Now the word diligence means to characterize, to be characterized by steady, earnest, and energetic activity. Again, we're not talking about trying to be saved. We're talking about uh, saved people having some diligence. Not to remain and keep saved, but to do the work that God's called us to do. Now, the thing of it is, we don't have to do this work on our own. We have the Spirit of God. And it's, it's really diligence is the opposite of giving up. Uh, 
Uh, in fact, the Spirit of God is able to give us hope during the troubled times of our lives. And this passage concerns the struggle that's going on in and around all of us this evening. Paul shares with us three arenas of life where there is diligence in the midst of a devastated world. We'll look at these three arenas tonight. First of all, we notice the creation groans. The word groaneth in verse 22 means to sigh. It has the idea of one groaning under a burden. And this is the image used to describe creation. Notice, first of all, creation's experience. As the apostle thinks upon the afflictions of those who trust Christ, he realizes the fact that the suffering of men stands in close relationship to the physical world. The created world is personified as eagerly awaiting the day when the children of God will be displayed in all of their glory. Look back at verse 20. It says, for the creation was subjected to vanity. Vanity means here decay, failure, something that is perishable. Uh, and uh, then he talks about not, uh, in verse 20, subject to vanity, not willingly. Means of its own will, uh, because of him who subjected it on the basis of hope. Remember King Solomon, he was quite a pessimist, by the way. He wrote, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. That's what he wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 7. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a, a weary round of repetition. Uh, the rivers run into the sea and the Lord has quite a hydraulic pump that pumps the water right out of the ocean and his great transportation system. The wind moves the clouds over the dry land and then it comes becomes rain and the rain comes down and it runs into the rivers and the rivers run into the sea. It just keeps going, the cycle. It fills the rivers, the rivers run into the sea and when you think about it, that's kind of the monotony of nature. Although sometimes when you look at some of those places, it does it's anything but monotonous. You think, boy, that's beautiful how the water runs down that mountain and stream and so forth. The Lord is wonderful in his creation. But nature is waiting for the promised manifestation, the, the unveiling. Creation uh, was subject to vanity, it says here, because God made it that way. Uh, the curse of sin came upon man in Adam's disobedience. But the physical world also came under the curse. Now remember uh, that God said to Abraham, Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast, wast thou taken, and for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Now that reminds me of something. It reminds me of when I was a kid. I remember as a young boy, we had thorns or thistles, sometimes called stickers, we called them. Well, they were really goat heads back there in Kansas. Or, you know, if you've ever seen a goat head before, it's a sticker. And I had to hoe stickers. We had them in our yard. And you didn't dare go barefoot or else you're going to get one of those thorns, one of those things in your, in your feet. But I, that was my duty. Uh, I was pretty skinny back then. Uh, but uh, 
That's because I did all that hoeing. Uh, and if we didn't keep ahead of them, they would just overgrown, grow the yard. These were the kind that, you know, uh, you had to get the, the root of the, the, the plant and you had to get down in there. You couldn't just chop it off because it just come right back again. Well, as a kid, I didn't know any better. I just chop them off and pile them up, you know, and uh, the next day there'd be more and it just seemed like they'd always come back and I'd have to keep hoeing. <clears throat> when we lived out in Western Kansas, there were so many thorns and stickers that our kids could not have regular tubes in their bicycle tires. I had to put solid rubber tubes in their tires because anytime they went out and rode their bike, they'd get one of these thorns or these thistles in there too, and they'd have a flat tire. I was always fl- fixing flat tires until I finally said, you know, I can't fix any more flat tires. I'm going to get a solid. Now, it's kind of rough riding, grant you. You know, it's solid tire, but sure keeps you from having flats. Uh, they couldn't ride more than a half a day without getting a flat. And then we also had uh, stickers that would grow in our grass, and they couldn't keep them mowed down or sprayed. They would grow and spread. They, uh, some of those uh, stickers would kind of look like little porcupines. I remember one of our gas stations had a jar that was labeled porcupine eggs. And they'd taken some of those little sand burrs, you know, that all look like a porcupine, and they'd filled up this this jar, and they'd put a label on it, and they'd actually sell them to uh, travelers who didn't know any better coming through, you know. We also had a beautiful golf course there in Syracuse, Kansas, right there next to the Arkansas River. It was the Arkansas River now. It's not the Arkansas River. It's the Arkansas River. But on each side of the fairways, you would have tamarisk bushes, and you did not want to hit your ball into the tamarisk bushes. They, you know, you just didn't want to go in there after it because they were sticky and prickly and you, uh, most likely wouldn't find it. In fact, it wasn't too long ago. I probably still had some of the balls that Jake and I went and gathered by the bucketfuls because, you know, those who were too lazy to go in there and hunt for them. But we had to really, uh, you know, we had to pay the price. Well, you see, there's a curse. In creation. And you'll find that curse when you plant your gardens again this, this, uh, spring and this summer. You'll, your garden will want to grow weeds and you think, why do those grow so well and my plants don't? Well, if you want your plants to grow, you got to get the weeds out of there. But we're, our, our, our creation is under a curse. So that's creation's experience. Now, we also have creation's expression. Again, in verse 22, this verse depicts the creation as sighing and uh, writhing uh, like a woman in the throes of childbirth. And the result of that curse, uh, uh, that's plain to see. You know, we've seen earthquakes and we've seen thorns. And uh, this morning there was roadkill on my uh, street and there's poisonous snakes and there's poisonous plants. Uh, there's death. There's violence. Um, and just this last week, a couple of people lost their lives in a tornado down in Illinois, Rochelle, Illinois. I, uh, we used to drive right past Rochelle all the time, uh, but they got hit pretty bad. Well, that's part of that curse that's very plain to see. Even in the midst of creation's pain, it still lifts its voice to God and prays for His majesty and glory. Turn back to the Psalm 148 with me for just a moment here. 
Uh, Psalm 148, that's uh, almost to the end of the Psalms there, since there's only 150 chapters. Uh, Psalms 148. Look at it with me for just a moment. Psalms 148 says, Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, uh, all His angels. Praise ye Him, all His hosts. Praise ye Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all ye stars of light. Praise Him, ye heavens of the heavens and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded that they were created. He hath also established them forever and ever. He hath made a decree which shall not pass. Praise the Lord from the earth. Ye dragons and all deeps, fire and hail and snow and vapors and stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all people. Princes of all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and heaven. He also exalted the horn of his people, the praise of all his saints, even the children of Israel, a people near unto him. Praise ye the Lord. You see, uh, even creation can lift its voice, so to speak, and praise his majesty. I can't help but think of that other psalm in Psalm one, uh, Psalm nineteen, as well. Wonderful uh, psalm, uh, uh, Psalm nineteen. The heavens declare the glory of God; the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth; their words to the end of the world. In them hath He set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of its chamber and rejoices as a strong man to run his race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. There's that wedding reference again, isn't there? I was telling our uh, lovely wedding couple here how it seems that all my messages have some kind of marriage or wedding emphasis on them lately, but... uh, I don't know why that is. But anyway, creation's expression. But then we have creation's expectation. Back in Romans chapter 8 and verses 19 through 21, these verses tell us that creation itself expects to be delivered from the curse has been placed upon it. The word expectation there in verse 19. For the earnest expectation uh, brings to mind the image of a person standing on their tiptoes in order to see something, you know, getting a little, uh, they're maybe like at a parade or somebody and somebody's looking for the, the beginning of the parade and they're all kind of standing on their tiptoes trying to see over everybody. That's kind of the idea here. Uh, creation yearns for that time when it will uh, in fact be delivered from the ravages of the curse of sin. And while the world and all the creation resides under a curse this evening, there is still great beauty in this world, isn't there? Just call to mind the many great vistas and views that can be found around us. You know, imagine, if you will, a beautiful scene of rolling hills with ponds and streams and flowers and tall grass waving in the breeze. And then imagine some shorter grass, 
that goes off into the distance. And as you walk along this stretch of grass, you maybe see trees and flowers on either side. And then as this shorter grass kind of goes around a slight bend, then you see even a shorter area of grass and maybe some beautiful white sand surrounding it. And then they're right in the middle of this shortly cut grass like a carpet in a beautiful mansion is a flag with a number on it sticking out of a hole right in the middle. And right next to that hole is a shiny white ball. What beauty. (laughs) And then you walk up to the little white ball and you take a stick and you just tap it into the hole. Now that's beauty. I guess I got a little carried away. After all, this is Master's Weekend, and my golfing partner came back from Texas. And we're eager, expectation, you know, to get out there and take a nice, beautiful walk. And one of these days, we're going to get Dan Peterson out there, and he's going to help us on that walk, and he's going to appreciate it even more. You know, you look at all the beauty of the flowers and the wonderful variety to be found in the plant and the animal kingdoms. Now you try to imagine the most natural, beautiful, natural sight you've ever seen. Some of you have been on some trips where you've seen some beautiful things. And with that image in mind, remember that what you saw was a sight marred by sin. Now try to imagine how glorious the same sight would be with the curse of sin forever removed. Creation longs to be free, and God longs to free it. And he shall someday. For when Jesus died on the cross for the redemption of sinners, he also redeemed this sin-cursed world. And one day the shackles will be will fall off and all creation will rejoice. Look at verse 21 again. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption unto the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, first of all, in the millennial reign of Christ, the whole earth will share in the glory of the Lord. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2 says, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice in the blossom as the rose, and it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon, and they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. And peace then will exist in the animal world as well, as it says in Isaiah eleven six and verse 9 as well. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leper shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and the little child shall lead them. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then nations uh, will live at peace with one another. In Isaiah 2 and verse 4, it says there, And he shall judge among the nations. And then on down in the verse it says, For men shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There is a day coming when all of that's going to happen. According to Zechariah chapter 14, great topographical changes will take place on the face of the earth, and the land will be blessed with flowering gardens and fruitful fields and overflowing harvests. 
And glorified saints will be ruling with Christ. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. The judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads and in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Wonderful as this time will be, however, It cannot equal the glory of eternity. Because some sin is still going to be present during that thousand years. Some punishment will still be required and some will die. And after Satan has led one final rebellion against God and his people, the material of our present universe will be purged and purified by fire. And out of this will emerge a new earth a heavenly Jerusalem, and then shall descend to the new Jerusalem, and the final vision of Apostle John will become a reality. Revelation 21 and verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Sin shall never enter that glorious transfigured new earth. And at that time, Paul's declaration about the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of the corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That will then be fully realized. The creation groans. Now, I had one fellow tell me this passage talks about how there will be dogs in heaven. I know some of you have some wonderful dogs, some wonderful pets at your house, but I don't believe they'll be in heaven. Now this fellow, he was a dog lover, and he he loved dogs, and he thought this is what tells us that dogs will be in heaven. Well, I think it's stretching it a little bit, so be careful when you use verses like this to to uh, uh, back up your 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 thinking. But the creation groans. Secondly, the Christian groans. The Christians, uh, Christian groans in verses 22 uh, through 25. Look again at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and the travaileth in pain together until now. Now, this verse indicates that the sufferings of all creation, including mankind, are like pangs of birth. Again, we've mentioned that already, but in the midst of present affliction and the comforting expectation that a new age will be soon born, we know that Christ sometimes undergoes deep agony while we wait for the day of resurrection and glory. However, even while we go through the uh, this period of waiting and suffering, we possess the first fruits of the Spirit, tells us there in verse uh, 23. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the down payment, as we mentioned that this morning. He is the down payment and the first installment of the eternal glory that awaits us. And along with creation, the child of God groans this evening. We groan within our bodies. Think, I think most of us that are over 50 can identify with aching bodies, can't we? Now, if you want to hear about groaning, just ask my wife, and she'll tell you what groaning really is. Because when I get sick, I groan. And not all of us like pain, but my wife has lived with pain for 44-plus years. That's me. 
And sometimes she gives me a bad time about my groaning. But I believe it's scriptural to to groan. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 2, it says, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon our house with which is in heaven. And also the psalmist said in Psalm 6, 6, I am weary with my groaning, all the night make on my bed to swim, I water my couch with tears. Our Lord Jesus did some weeping also. And although I believe Jesus was a joyful person. There are times when he did weep. Because in our bodies we groan. Now primarily Paul is speaking of our desire to be free from these mortal bodies, these sinful bodies. You know, someday when Jesus comes or we go to uh, be with the Lord in heaven, you know, we're not going to have any more sickness. We're not going to have any more pain. Uh, we're not going to have anything to deal with like uh, cancer or, or disease. And he mentions here the first fruits of the Spirit. Again, this is referring to the indwelling ministry of the Spirit of God in the believer's life. When we got saved, the Spirit of God moved into our spirit. That's what it said back in verse 9 of chapter 8 here. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You see, when he came, he worked in us in such a way that we began the process of seeing sin as God sees sin. And in very simple terms, the Spirit of God sensitizes us to sin. You know, sometimes people, uh, they sin and they have no qualms about it. They don't even they don't think about, oh, that's not bad. But you know, when you get saved, you realize, hey, that was really, that's really sinful. It's because the Spirit of God dwells within you, and he begins to sensitize you, and we become sensitive to sin around us and in us, and as a result, we are afflicted by the sins we commit, and we see others commit. And if sin doesn't bother you, you have a spiritual problem, a serious problem. If you can witness sin and it not affect you, something is wrong in your heart. Now, all of this serves to produce within a believer a sense of longing, We want to be delivered from the sinful mortal bodies. And regardless of what anyone else tells you, your flesh did not get saved. It's depraved and it's wicked as it has ever been. You just go back and read what Paul said in chapter 7, verses 18 through 25. Now, aren't there times when you would do anything just to be free of your flesh? Wouldn't it be a blessing if you never had a wicked thought again? Wouldn't it be a blessing if you never did a wicked deed? You see, a sin attraction uh, or a lust, a presence of the Holy Spirit with the resultant change he's brought into the lives of those who've trusted him is evidence that God is working. He's already working. And believers may be assured that the Lord always carries out what he begins. The Holy Spirit has introduced us to a, a taste of heaven, if you please. Once heaven seemed a far place, off place, till Jesus showed his smiling face. Now it's begun within my soul, twill last while endless ages roll. And looking back on what God has done in Christ, considering all he's doing now through the indwelling Holy Spirit, believers can look forward with confidence to the day when they will be glorified. 
And so that brings us to the Christian's anticipation. In verses 24 and 25, Paul tells us that we're saved by hope. Verse 24, for we are saved by hope. What does he mean? Well, hope in the Bible is vastly different than the meaning that most people give it today. When people use the word hope now, they usually say, I wish or I want. You know, I wish this would happen or I want that particular thing. I hope I can get it. When the Bible uses the word hope, it means an assurance based on a conviction. Instead of hope being a fond wish or a desire, biblical hope is a deep, settled knowledge grounded in the promises of God. And we're saved by faith in the promise of God that tells us that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a conviction that salvation comes through faith in the shed blood and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a sure knowledge that one day our Lord will come for us and he's going to take us to heaven. And it's a sure knowledge that we'll be changed from these vile creatures that we are and we're going to be made like him. We who are saved grown to be free from these bodies. We long to be remade into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm glad that I can report to you not to this evening that that day is coming. One day, whether it be by the undertaker or the upper taker, the sinful flesh will breathe its last and I will be remade in the image of my Savior. That was the heart of David in Psalm seventeen fifteen. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. And I believe it's in the heart of every born-again saint of God. The creation groans, the Christian groans, and thirdly, the comforter groans. Now these verses go on to tell us, that it isn't just the creation and the Christian that are groaning in this present world. Our heavenly comforter, the blessed Holy Ghost, also groans with us. And I'm glad this evening that we have one with us who is able to experience our need. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The comforter sustains us. Look at verse 26, verse 8, uh, uh, the first part here. Uh, verse 26, likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. This verse teaches that the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us as we travel through this harsh world. and He takes hold of our burden. That's what the word help is how the word help is used back in Luke chapter 10 and verse 40. The believer needs the same down-to-earth basic help every day. What's, what do we need help with? What burden? Well, the burden of living in this weak, sinful, moral, deficient body. He knows our tendency toward evil, and he helps us. He knows that we are prone to wonder, and he helps us. He knows that we often grow weary in well-doing, and he helps us. So it's only through the ministry of the Spirit of God working in us to help us that we are able to do anything that, we could be, that could be called good. We are weak and we are sinners, but he strengthens us so that we're able, by his help, to carry on 
for the glory of God. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Don't just glance over that. Just don't run over that. Boy, that's deep truth right there. And then, secondly, the Comforter speaks to us. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. To illustrate the point here, Paul apprised this to the arena of prayer because of our sins and our tendency toward evil. We're not able to pray in the manner that is absolutely consistent with the perfect will of God. And yet the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is God, knows the will of God, and He knows what is in our redeemed spirit. He takes our prayers, which are often flawed and misguided, and He straightens them out. Tells the Father what is really in our hearts. Have you ever gone to God sometimes in prayer when you actually didn't know what to pray for? You say, I, I need to pray, but I just don't know exactly how to say this, God. All you can do is say, Dear Father. And that's as far as you get. You could not ask for anything because you don't know what to ask for. It's times like this as the Spirit helpeth our infirmities. And I think how wonderful that is. When our loved ones are very ill, sometimes we're torn between our human desire to have them with us and our knowledge that, you know, to be with the Lord would be far better. And so we don't know how to pray. Lord, I have a loved one here that's very sick and they're about to die, and yet I don't want them to die. I want them to still be here, but I know, Lord, this is a hard time. It's times like that the Spirit gives aid in praying. Intense pain and deep grief and inability hinders us from saying or praying, Thy will be done, and the Holy Spirit will come to our aid, our help, and present our prayers before the throne of God and can express our prayers clearly. And then verse 27, And he searcheth the hearts, knowing knoweth that what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, if I go to God in prayer and say, you know, look, Lord, I want to do this, and I want it to do it this way, isn't that what we really do many times? Even if we don't actually pray those words, sometimes we kind of say, Lord, do it this way. This is what I want to happen. And the thought behind our prayers is not God's will, but it's our will. And we want God to bless our will. And then we don't get an answer to what we prayed, and so we get upset and frustrated. But it's wonderful sometimes to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't know what to ask for. I don't know what to say. I'm coming to you as my child. I want to do whatever you want. I want your will to be done in this. And the Spirit of God then will make intercession for us according to the will of God. That's what this passage is telling us. And that is a wonderful principle from God's Word. It's a bigger blessing than you can know. After all, who among us knows the perfect will in every matter? You know God's perfect will in everything? I don't. Who among us knows how to 
pray about everything we hear about. Who knows the mind of God better than God? The Holy Spirit knows the mind of God because He is God. And so He's able to translate our prayers out of the flawed, selfish language we oftentimes use into the perfect will of God, this genuine biblical praying in the Spirit. Now, while the creation groans to be free from the curse, and while Christians groan to be free from these bodies, the Spirit of God groans to see the will of God done in the world and in our lives. And that's why he takes much such an active role in everything we do. It isn't just prayer. I think prayer is the illustration here that Paul uses. The Holy Ghost is actively involved in the process of helping us as we travel through this world. He's just who Jesus said he would be, a comforter. John 14 and verse 16. I will send you a comforter. And I'm thankful for the comfort the Holy Spirit can provide. Let us not grow weary as we walk through this world. There are times when we find it hard to worship and to pray and do the work of God, but we have a helper. We have one within us who always rises to meet the challenge, and he's able, enable, enables us to walk in victory. Now, whoever said the walk of faith was an easy walk, they lied. They didn't know what they were talking about. And yet, I will say that even though it isn't always easy, it's never impossible. Will we suffer? I believe we will. Will we groan while we're here? Oh yes, we'll groan. Will there be times when we fail? Feel like quitting? Yeah. But in those times, remember, we have the Spirit of God within us, and He enables us to remain diligent and committed as we travel toward a better country. Now, even though we're going to look at verse 28 more closely next time, look at it now. We know this verse. It's a familiar verse. It's a wonderful promise, and we'll end there tonight. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father in heaven,